Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Carla McLaren. Carla McLaren is an award-winning author, social science researcher, and empathy pioneer. Her work focuses on a grand unified theory of emotions in which she moves us beyond looking at some emotions as negative and some emotions as positive, and instead helps people see the intelligence and even the genius that lives inside every single emotion and how emotions are actually messengers and friends. With Sounds True, Carla McLaren has written the classic book, The Language of Emotions, as well as a book called The Art of Empathy, a guide to life's most essential skill, and a new book, Embracing Anxiety, how to access the genius inside this vital emotion. Carla McLaren is a true pioneer. She is a fierce truth teller, and she's always willing to say it how she sees it. Here's my conversation with Carla McLaren on how to befriend our emotions at this time. Carla, it's great to be with you again. I have uh, such a deep respect for your view and teaching on emotions. So thanks for being here on Insights at the Edge. Thank you. It's so good to be with you again. You have devoted your career to developing a grand unified theory of emotions. I just love that, (laughs) the grand unified theory part. (laughs) And by way of introduction, can you introduce our listeners to the basic framework of this grand unified theory of emotions. Yes, and it is also evolving. It it evolves every year. But basically what it is is that emotions are basic aspects of our ability to understand the world. They're basic aspects of our cognition. And the way that I heard about emotions when I was growing up is that they were things that would stop you from being able to have appropriate cognition. They were they would be in the way. They're a problem. You need to control them or shut them down, but never listen to them because they're out of control. And so that was my early training, and I thought, there's, there's got to be something else here. And so I ended up studying the emotions I still do for most of my life really intently um, because I did believe at that time that, 
yes, if we could just get people to stop having or feeling their emotions, then everything would be perfect and logic would reign and, and you know, um, cats and dogs would live together. It would be beautiful. <laughs> but I lived in a community which was the 1970s, 1980s New Age movement here in California. And it was a very emotion-avoiding movement. We were always supposed to be in peace and joy and love and light and, you know, happiness. And I've never seen a group that is more um, emotionally disturbed and distraught and troubled than people who, uh, who won't use emotions. And I would see the emotions, but because people had been talked out of them, they weren't aware of them or they didn't know how to name them. So there'd be angers and rages and fears and anxieties and panics and jealousy and envy, but nobody could speak of it. And so these these communities would regularly savage each other, but they would use these weird words like, well, this isn't a judgment. It's an observation, and then they just kick you. You know, or or they would look down on you if you were crying, if you had any human emotion. And so I went, okay, so now I've seen what it looks like not to have emotions. So let me unhook myself from these people and see what it is to have them. And that led me into drama, um, poetry, any kind of art form uh, is where we generally will allow emotions to come out, um, literature. And then learned through that, not through this artificial weirdness of, of shutting emotions down, but allowing emotions to be. And that's kind of how it started for me, is to just notice if you try to knock emotions away or cut them out or turn them into something else, you're going to create problems. Now, you, you mentioned that emotions are actually an aspect of cognition. I thought that was really interesting. What, what do you mean by that? Well... I think a lot of people think that emotions are separate from, well, the way that we've been taught is that they're separate from logic, they're separate from spirituality, they're separate from, you know, uh, goodness. <laughs> but as it turns out, emotions are the underlayment of all of our cognition. So if emotions aren't there, we cannot consider ourselves to be conscious. Um, the neuroscientist of emotion, Antonio Damasio, put this forward as he would watch people, he works with people who have brain injury. And you can be awake but not conscious. There are forms of epilepsy where this is true. And what he began to notice is that when emotions were present, you could say that the person was conscious. And it's because the emotions help you identify what's going on around you, attach meaning to data, and to respond to the world uh, that you are in or that you imagine. And so this idea that logic requires not having emotions is not only not true, it's totally untrue. Logic requires that you are conscious and that your emotions are online. So emotions underlie all thought, all behavior, all action, and um, all cognition. They're, they're there to support us rather than being this weird offshoot of, you know, something that we don't want to think about. Um, just knock those emotions away and then everyone will be logical. But they can't because that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the subtitle of your new book, Embracing Anxiety, is How to Access the Genius inside this vital emotion. And later in our conversation, we're going to talk specifically 
about embracing anxiety. You call anxiety your friend, and we're, we're going to talk about that because I think for a lot of people, they don't have that experience. But right now, what I want to ask you about is this idea that we can access the genius inside this emotion. And I know from your writing that you believe that emotions hold genius power. What do, what do you mean by that? How do emotions carry a genius in them? I think because emotions are, are the, the basic aspect of cognition, a lot of the things that emotions do for us or that emotions give for us are called by other names. And let's talk about um, anxiety because we will later, but anxiety helps you plan for the future and organize yourself and hit your deadlines and do your work on time. And there can be difficulties with anxiety, but that's its basic job. Each emotion has a different basic job. But if someone is good with anxiety, we would never say that to them. We would say, hey, you're organized. You get things done on time. I can rely on you. I know when you say you're going to do something, you will. You are a conscientious, right? We, we wouldn't see the emotion that's underneath there. And so in my work, I help people identify emotions at that basic cognitive level where they're just, you know, scooting along doing what they do and helping people live their basic lives. Um, and, of course, we also identify emotions when they get, you know, more intense and, and they need to work at a more obvious level. But all of the emotions have this basic, um, um, basically they help you function as, as a human. Also, animals have emotions too, so they help everybody function. But um, just to understand that each one has a very specific area of genius that it gives to you. And because we've all been taught to avoid emotions and look down on them and um, repress them, um, we miss it. And so we call it something else. Mm -hmm. So just to uh, underscore this for a moment, this notion that each emotion has a basic job. Here in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, many people are feeling something that they might identify as the emotion of outrage, something like that. What would you say is the job of outrage? What's its genius? Outrage is a, is a form of anger. It's a, it's a louder form of anger, but all angers help us understand what we value and when boundaries and values have been crossed. And so because we value George's life and we value black lives, and we're seeing that, no, they're not valued. Our anger comes up, our rage comes up, our outrage comes up, and that's normal and it's necessary. Um, <clears throat> but clearly for many people, it's hard to watch it's hard to be around. They're afraid of anger. They're afraid of outrage. And so a lot of the the back and forth that I'm seeing right now is between people who are um, feeling their outrage and, and acting it out. Sometimes it's tiring them out. Sometimes it's frightening them. But they're doing it. And then people who are watching it and are, are very, um, uh, they're frightened by it. They're, they want to step away from it. They don't like to see that kind of emotion out there. They want people to, you know, be peaceful and calm down and that sort of thing. So I'm really watching how, 
how emotions are playing out and how people's basic emotional uh, skill set is really being um, uh, called upon and in many cases shown not to be very strong at this point. Oh, I think I think people are feeling really challenged. I mean, this is my observation by the level of emotional content that is filling their lives and tossing them every which way. Mm-hmm. What would be a skillful way of being in the pandemic, all the emotions that that brought up, this cry for social justice at our time. What's your vision of how people would skillfully work with all of the different emotions that are doing, they're doing a job, but I think for many of us, it feels like they're doing a job on us, not that we're doing a job (laughs) with them. (laughs) Um, I would say the most important thing is to have a community of people who have an emotional vocabulary that you can talk to. Um, and a lot of people don't have that. They, nobody in their life knows enough about emotions to talk to them. And, um, uh, or, or they just want the emotions to go away, you know, just like everybody calm down. And that's not what's needed right now. Yeah, calming yourself is a good skill to have. And right now, it's time to be in a more intense state, right? So how do you work with intense states of emotion? You do your self-care right? Um, Otherwise, you're going to get tired out. A lot of people are just tired. I noticed when I went out, um, we're still in the middle of pandemic. We're not out of the woods yet. And I went out to a hardware store and I just saw people are tired. They're tired of wearing their masks. They weren't wearing them very well. You know, they're just, they had it. And I just noticed that without being able to talk about their emotions and not being able to talk about the situation, they're sort of... um, sort of giving up on it, on all of it. So, yeah, the first thing is to have a community of people who have an emotional vocabulary and then to develop one yourself. Um, Many studies are showing that if you simply have more words for your emotions, you can learn to regulate them better. That's it. That's all you need to do. Like, you don't even have to make up a skill. You just learn more words so that you can understand if you're a little bit angry, maybe you're frustrated, maybe you're more angry, you're peeved, maybe you're outraged, maybe you're incensed, right? But to locate yourself on this 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 spectrum of emotions helps your body and your brain go, oh, okay, all right, it's it's anger. I'm not having a heart attack right now. It's anger. It's this level of anger. Um, it can really help. It seems simple, but it can really help. I don't think I'm quite clear why that's so helpful, why increasing my emotional vocabulary will help me better regulate. Maybe you could give some more examples of that. Well, one of the studies that that this sort of came from or started out with is language studies of people in, um, I think it was Russia, who have just more words for the color blue. And they have many more words for the color blue. And Russian speakers, when they're shown, uh, you know, a color spectrum, can identify more colors of blue than English speakers who don't have as many words. So it actually makes it so that your brain and your, your senses can identify things that are invisible to other people. So understanding more 
about your different the differences of emotions um, means that you are going to have more understanding that this is an emotion. For a lot of people, they might say, I don't know, I just feel crappy. I just feel upset. And that's as far as they can get. They don't know. It could be that it's a stomachache. They don't really know what's happening. I'm just feeling riled up. Um, so they're not able to identify what their emotional tone is, what the level of emotion, how many emotions are there. So they're kind of clueless. They don't see the colors. They don't have that capacity. And so a lot of their, because emotions are aspects of cognition, a lot of their cognition is hidden from them. It's, it's a mystery. Okay. Uh, I'm still hoping you could give me a specific example. So let's take this person who says, I feel crappy. And they don't really know what to do with that, uh, except maybe like, you know, lie on the couch and put the blanket over their head. Or, you know, I'm just coming up with any <laughs> example. What might yeah. it be if they were able to be more discriminating and language their emotion in a specific way, uh, how would that give them a different capacity to regulate at that moment? Might they still just want to lie on the couch with the blanket on their head? They still feel crappy. Sure. <laughs> um, one of the things that I do is separate the emotions into four families, and it makes it easier for people to begin choosing. So the families are the anger family, the fear family, the sadness family, and the happiness family. And so people can go through, am I feeling any level of happiness or hope right now? Nope. Am I feeling any sense of loss or that I need to let go of something? That would be the sadness family. Yep. Uh, am I feeling any sense of, of danger or, 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 you know, that something is going to happen that I have to plan for or, or that I have to focus on or, or something? That's the fear family. Yep, so we've got sadness and fear going on, right? And is there anything of value to me that has been stepped across? Have my boundaries been stepped across? Yep. So the person may have, may be feeling, you know, emotions in three of these families, and then that can tell them, well, no wonder I'm feeling upset and crappy. I'm dealing with a lot of situations that have called these emotions forward. And so instead of feeling overtaken by their emotions or maybe victimized by emotions, they can understand, ah, this is what's happening. I have a lot going on inside me at this time. And just naming them can help. Just naming their emotions with precision can settle their body. It's strange, but it's true. Now, right in the beginning of your new book, Embracing Anxiety, as a form of background and context, you devote a chapter to looking at four keys to unlocking the genius in our emotions. And one you've already talked about, which is increasing our vocabulary about emotions. Mm -hmm. But the very first key you articulate, which to some people could be obvious, but I can tell you in my work interviewing people for this podcast. I, I, it's not obvious to a lot of people. And <laughs> what you write as the first key is there are no negative emotions and there are no positive emotions either. So uh, go ahead and explain that, uh, especially in light of, you know, I think most people when they hear 
the four families that you just described would say, okay, anger, negative, sadness, negative, fear, negative, happiness, positive. Great. Yeah. You only have one positive family, but <laughs> what you're saying is no negative, no positive. Yeah. Just, just, just little bits of genius. Um, and, and I don't think we'll ever get rid of the concept of negative and positive emotions, but in doing this work, it's really important to try to get rid of that idea or try to really challenge it because <clears throat> there are no negative emotions because emotions are part of your cognition. They're not some separate thing that comes to, to bum you out or it comes to take you away from your logic or your rationality or your spirituality. They are, they are essential aspects of your capacity to do and think and be anything. So, there can't be negative ones and there can't be positive ones. There can only be emotions as a category. And the problem with seeing them as negative and positive is that if I tell you an emotion is negative and you feel it a lot of the time, then you're either going to sort of have an out-of-body experience as you try to get away from that emotion or you're going to invite more emotions to come out. You might feel fear or shame or anxiety or grief because you are not good at emotions, obviously, because you're having negative ones. But going to the other side, if I say there's a positive emotion and you don't feel it, you may also have an emotion pile up of shame and anger and fear and depression and grief and sadness and whatever and envy toward people who feel whatever the positive emotion is. And so instead of being with that emotion, you've now created like an emotion pile up, uh, an emotion traffic jam. Not because those emotions are necessary, but because they are responding to this terrible messaging about positive and negative emotions. And the sad thing is this messaging is everywhere. It's in psychology, it's in psychiatry, and it's in neurology. So every place we go to get help with our emotions teaches us that there are positive and negative ones. And it's, um, it's the first problem, I say. There, there just aren't any, right? Um, and you're right. People think there's only one good family, and um, it's just the happiness family. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about it, Carla, because I think most people are like, yeah, when I feel happy, I feel good. That's why Yay. it's a positive emotion. Yay, <laughs> it's positive. Smiley Yay. face. I feel good. And when I feel a lot of these other things, I don't feel good. That feels yeah. negative. What, yeah. Isn't that true in a certain way? Uh, yeah, it is. And, and we've all seen people take emotions and hurt people with them. That's negative. Like, I'm not fighting you on that one. But I think what, what I'm seeing and what I'm talking about now as I'm thinking about it is that I think there's a fundamental attribution error of emotions that's going on, which is that when things are rough, when things are troubling, there's a lot of emotions there. And so people are attributing the trouble to the emotions, right? So what I'm saying now is emotions don't create the problem. They come to help you deal with the problem. And the more the merrier, right, if that's what they're there for, and it is. So so you're having a terrible situation, work isn't going well, relationships aren't going well, you're feeling many emotions that you attribute your discomfort to those emotions. 
But those emotions are there to help with the discomfort. And that's why learning to name them and identify them at greater and greater levels of articulation is so important because they're tools and they're aspects of genius. So, like, you want them, but it is painful, uh, but so is life. Where, where were we taught that things are always going to be nice, right? Where were we taught that happiness is always appropriate? I just, who taught us that? Who said that? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, 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 once again, because uh, I do think these concrete examples help, let's talk about that person who, just as you said, is having a hard time at work and they're suffering and maybe they're under a lot of pressure and mm-hmm. they're feeling some combination of uh, worried and they're feeling stress and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe even a little panicky, stuff like that. And you're saying these emotions are coming to help that person. How are they coming to help? How are they helpful? Let's say the person is having, you said worry, um, sadness, maybe some depression, maybe some frustration, anger. Each of these emotions brings a specific kind of support. And so worry and anxiety would be helping the person organize everything that's going on at work. Maybe the person's overworked. If there's sadness there, um, sadness comes to help us let go of things that aren't working anymore. If there's anger there, anger helps us set boundaries. So all three of those things are really necessary in this miserable work environment. You know, how has it gotten to this place? And emotions come forward to help. And so if we know that, we can say, I'm feeling angry right now. Oh, I need to set a boundary. You know, or I'm feeling sad. What, what needs to be let go of? And I'm feeling worried and anxious okay, so I need to organize myself. What needs to get done, right? And so this is a very different way to approach emotions than most people have been taught, which is um, I have these three emotions that I am identifying as painful, so I need to take a deep breath and and go um, do something that makes me feel happy. And if happiness were a person with a voice, it would say, what are you doing here? I'm, this is not my place. I'm not called forth at this time. Why are you doing this? Um, this is not a happiness situation. This isn't a happy job. This isn't a happy day. Um, why are you here? Um, so the way that we've been trained to work with emotions ends up putting a lot of unnecessary strain on the happiness family, right? They, they're tired. Happiness family are tired. And they're like, would you go please and talk to anger right now? Because I'm trying to take a nap, (laughs) which they can never do. Okay, so you you have these uh, four keys to unlocking the genius in our emotions. The first is that there are no negative emotions and there's no positive emotions either. Uh, I'm going to act as if the listener is tracking with us on that (laughs) and that emotions arise, uh, you write at different levels of intensity and increasing Mm -hmm. our vocabulary is essential. And Mm -hmm. I think, okay, people have uh, tracked with you on that. And then it's normal for emotions to work in pairs, groups, and clusters. Uh, I I think that's interesting and that people don't necessarily know how to identify what those pairs or clusters are that are are happening. What are some of the common pairs or clusters that you see? And especially now uh, in this time that we're in, 
in the COVID-19 period? What are some of the common pairs or clusters that you, you see? I see two trios that are happening a lot. One is um, fear, anxiety, and panic are up uh, around the, um, the threat of the virus. Um, fear, I'll just quickly, fear helps us focus on the present moment. It helps us access our instincts and intuition. Anxiety helps us prepare ourselves for the future. And panic helps when we are in physical danger. It has that fight, flee, or freeze um, uh, options to give to us. So it is important to be aware of the present with fear because where are you? Do you have your mask? Do you have your hand sanitizer? Are people around you without masks? You know, that sort of thing. You need to know about the present. You also need to plan for the future. Where's your mask? Where's your hand sanitizer? Where are you going? Um, you know, uh, how many people will be there? Are they, are they doing social distancing? That sort of thing. And then panic should be there because COVID is, well, it's killing people. I think today we've got to 112,000 uh, people who died in the United States. So it's not, it's not silly for panic to be there. And so panic would be sort of like, uh, you know, am I in danger right now? Am I in danger? Do I need to fight, flee, or freeze? So these three emotions are necessary. But most people don't even have a practice for one of them. So what they're experiencing is that these emotions are overwhelming, right? They're just filling them with energy they don't even know what to do with. And that's a problem. The emotions aren't the problem. It's COVID-19 that's the problem, and the emotions are coming to help. But if we don't know that, we're just going to feel battered. Okay, that's the, the first trio. You mentioned there was a, a second cluster as well. Sadness, depression, and grief. And sadness is the emotion that comes to help us let go of things that aren't working anymore. Um, Depression is the emotion that comes to slow us down and take away our energy. This is situational depression. This isn't like major depression. This is depression that tracks to a situation you can identify. And depression helps us. It, it removes energy when we're going in the wrong way with the wrong intention, doing the wrong thing for the wrong reason. Uh, it's going to stop us when something is wrong and we shouldn't go forward. And then grief is the emotion that comes forward to help us mourn someone who's died or something that has died or something that we've lost forever. And so all of these three emotions are necessary. Sadness needs to keep helping us. What do you need to let go of? Um, the idea of a schedule, the idea of you're going to go to work, the idea of, you know, you're going to have quiet at home so that you can do the things that you did at work. You know, the idea that you're going to send your kids to school, let it go, let it go, keep being in the present moment. And then depression. A lot of us were thinking, I'm going to do this thing. And no, you can't right now. You can't do that thing. So depression is pulling us back, pulling us back and helping us stay in the present moment. And then grief about all the things that we've lost and all the people that we've lost and the way that, the, you know, the world isn't normal and it won't be normal again. Um, things are gone. All three of these emotions are crucial. But again, most people don't even have practice for one of these emotions. And so what they're feeling is overwhelmed by these emotions that are coming to help them. And that's sad. <laughs> I 
I made some videos like right away about these three emotions and I just put them up on, you know, YouTube. It was like, here's these six emotions. And I was like, here's these emotions. Let's, let's look at how to work with them. And if you were to give an example and maybe uh, we'll pick anxiety since that is the topic of your new book and we're going to work with it. We're going to work with it when it shows up. What, what does that look like? Because we understand, or we do right now, because we understand that anxiety is about preparing us for the future, we lean into what it does and work with it in the way that it works, rather than doing what most people have, taught, have been taught about pretty much every emotion, which is that you fight it. You fight it, you, get, you run to happiness, and happiness is like, is it you again, really? Um, and you just try to do anything <laughs> but have that emotion. <laughs> and so you, I've got a, a practice called Conscious uh, Questioning for Anxiety, and you ask it, okay, what do I need to do? What are my skills? What uh, is holding me back? Have I ever done this thing before? Who can help me? Um, you know, like you work with anxiety as itself. And then when you do, your anxiety says, cool, you've got this. And it will just recede a bit until you need it again. And what I've noticed is that as people learn to work with their emotions in this way, they don't have to yell at you anymore. You know, your anxiety doesn't have to go to, to level 1400, you know, in a scale of 1 to 10. Um, that you can begin to identify your anxiety with your with your good vocabulary and grab it before it becomes, uh, it goes to a place that you can't manage. Mm -hmm. Now, Carla, what sounds true, you wrote a previous book called The Language of Emotions, What Your mm -hmm. Feelings Are Trying to Tell You, and you laid out some of this basic development of a working vocabulary with the emotions. And then you wrote a book on the art of empathy, a complete guide to life's most essential skill. And then Sounds True said, you know, Carla, our customers really need help with anxiety in particular. Mm -hmm. We're watching them type the word into the search bar when they come to SoundsTrue.com. We're getting <laughs> uh, requests from customers. Can you help me? I'm feeling so anxious. Do you think we properly identified and named the emotion that people were feeling? Or do you think that perhaps our audience base was really feeling some kind of fear, anxiety, panic combination? This was all pre-COVID-19 that we approached you, that we saw this trend in the culture. And I'm, I'm just curious how you see that. I think that's a really good question, because as soon as I started writing the book, I realized I need to bring in the other emotions. So there's nine emotions that I have and that work with anxiety because for a lot of people when they say anxiety, which is the emotion that helps you prepare for the future, what they mean is panic, which is the emotion that will arise when you're in physical danger. And so, you know, I asked everybody out on Facebook, hey, what do you think about anxiety as I was writing it? Everybody talked about dread and fear for their life and I was like, Y'all, this is panic. And so I had to create um, I had to create new combined emotion words. We have a panxiety, which is panic and anxiety. So there's a chapter in embracing anxiety on panxiety and fear anxiety and uh, you know, all sorts of other um, uh, combined emotions because anxiety and 
the other emotions work together, sometimes beautifully and sometimes they just trip over each other, you know, if you don't have practices for either of them. Okay, so we approached you and we said, whether we named it correctly or not, we might have said, could you please write a book instead on embracing anxiety, fear, all wrapped up together. I don't know what the word would be that would combine all of that. And then here you wrote the specific book on embracing anxiety. And one of the things you say in the beginning is that there are two different main types of anxious manifestation. There's the person who's the procrastinator type, and then there's the planner type. Can you explain to our listeners the distinction between these two types of anxious humans? This is so interesting, and this is from the work of Dr. Mary Lamia, uh, who's a psychologist here in uh, Berkeley. And she identified two ways that people respond to their emotions, to their anxiety, in um, her book, What Motivates Getting Things Done. The first is uh, the planning, task-oriented person who they love lists, they love crossing things off of lists, and they get their task done in an A, B, C, one, two, three way, right? And that's what we would think of as someone who's doing a good job. But Dr. Lumia identified a second type, which are called procrastinators. And these are people who work to deadlines. So they may um, be very loose and easy. They're not tasking up to the deadline. They're not making lists up to the deadline. They don't look like they're doing much. And so the deadline comes, and they have... More, a more intense burst of anxiety uh, the night before or two nights before, and boom, it's done. It's brilliant. And we have been taught to look at procrastinators um, as lucky, as lazy and lucky, when in fact the way they're working is perfectly good for the way that they do it. Um, people who are task-oriented feel more low-level anxiety constantly, so they're always like, what's next, what's next, what's next? And procrastinators, they're working on the thing, whatever it is, they're working on it, but they can just chill up to it and then, you know, and then pull everything out the last second and boom, it's great. Um, but it's just interesting when I talk to procrastinators, they've never heard, um, unless they read Mary's book, they've never heard themselves um, identified as valuable or, or skilled, right? Everybody focuses on the task people. Mm-hmm. Are, are you which of these types or a combination? I'm super task. I'm super task. And my husband is super procrastinator. And reading this book was just so beautiful because I was able to uh, see the genius in what he was doing instead of what we've all been taught, which is to say they're lucky, Right. Well, that was lucky. Next time you should, you know, write a list or do it like I do it. And so it's been really nice uh, that he will rely on me now for things that need task, uh, you know, energy. And I will rely on him for things that need uh, deadline energy. Now, speaking of your your husband, uh, Tino, a beautiful man, you write in the book, you call Tino 
an anxiety shrine. And I thought, that's interesting. She's calling her husband an anxiety shrine. What does that mean? <laughs> it's a way to take the, the sort of the stain of pathology off of people who feel a great deal of anxiety. And um, Tino was raised in a very, very anxious family. And they were anxious about everything, both his mother and his father. And they just jacked up all three of their kids uh, into like these little sort of um, uh, tornadoes of anxiety. And Tino can work with it, but he is still a place where anxiety loves to visit. That's what we say. Instead of like he's anxiety disordered or something, he's an anxiety shrine. And so he contains all of the genius of anxiety um, that's that's something that I sort of created back in the language of emotions days. I'm a depression shrine, and um, I often say my brain gets an A-plus in depression, but I also have all of the genius that depression gives to me. So it's a good trade-off. But we aren't taught to look at it that way because, you know, the generally bad way that we've been taught to look at emotions, you know, as negative mm-hmm. and positive, very simplistic. Which which leads me to another question. How did we develop as a North American culture this view of emotions that we have, this simplistic view of happiness is the only positive emotion, et cetera? How did we get here? How did we get here? Well, it's definitely a European um, tradition. But as I look around um, the world at different um, approaches and especially uh, spiritual and religious approaches, I don't see a lot of places where the emotions are respected. Now, it is in poetry. Poetry is like emotion central. And our friend um, Rumi is an emotional genius, right? Um, But does that mean that Sufism, he was a Sufi, does that mean that Sufism contains that, or is it because he was a brilliant poet? Um, uh, of all of the world religions, I think only the only one I found that even likes emotions is Taoism, and only sometimes. Um, in uh, the Roman Catholic tradition, the seven deadly sins, five are emotions, one is an eating disorder, and the other is sex. <laughs> so it's like, okay, um, you know, we're told that emotions are sins, and that we don't want them, and poor emotions. They're like, I don't know how you got mm-hmm. this information. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, you, you called yourself a depression shrine. And I, I, I think that could be uh, something challenging for people to hear, uh, potentially <laughs> intriguing for them to hear. Uh, I think talk about uh, an emotion that has been maligned and then to combine it with the word shrine Tell me more about uh, the genius in being a depression shrine. <clears throat> well, I, I grew up, um, I, I, was, uh, I, had, I dealt with childhood trauma, and people who are traumatized in childhood often um, deal with depression throughout their lives. And depression, the, what I realized about it is that it has a very protective Uh, aspect to it. Depression is very protective. And uh, one of my friends in in DEI, which is is, uh, my work, Dynamic Emotional Integration, DEI for short, um, calls depression the reality check. It is 
No, you can't do that. That's not working. That's not how that goes. That's not what, no, no, things are not working. And when I was younger, I would be, you know, bopping along and then all of a sudden I would fall into just a severe, severe depression. I have major depression and dysthymia. Um, and I always like to say with a side of fresh fruit. Um, and so I, I lived many years in that, in that world of depression. So I got to know it very, very well. And it is my friend now. Um, and I, I learned the genius of it. And I, um, I have those skills. Uh, but when I was younger, I thought my world, my life, everything would be perfect if this horrendous depression would just you know, um, push off, get out, get out depression. You are making my life miserable. And again, I was making that fundamental attribution error. As a, as a traumatized person, there was a lot going on inside me that shouldn't have been. And there was a lot of training that I took in my early traumatic um, uh, experience that was still hanging off of me like moss. And I couldn't identify it, but my depression could. So depression was really what helped heal me, but you wouldn't think of it that way. So that's why I call people who are dealing with emotion uh, their shrines, because they're in the underworld, they're working in the depths. And if they can learn how to work with these emotions, then they can access the genius that's there. Like Tino does with, with the uh, anxiety. Can you share with me more about the genius in depression? So I call depression ingenious stagnation because it stops you when it is time to be stopped. It is not time to move forward. Either there's a physical issue, a psychological issue, something's going on in your body, something's going on in your hormonal system, something's wrong. And depression pulls your energy away so that you can... It's almost meditative so that you can stop, slow down, and figure out what's happening because it's not time to move forward, not with what's happening. So it can be a relationship, your job, poverty, um, um, injustice, that sort of thing. And the, the key with depression is to catch it when it is subtle so that you can work with it, because as anybody who's been depressed knows, if you only catch it, as I did when I was a teenager, when it was in severe suicidal, that's not easy, right? That's, you know, that's the rapids, and you want to be able to be in a nice little stream with your depression. So depression's always trying to stop you and pull the energy away so that you can focus on what's wrong. And who wants to do that? I'd rather move forward, right? So there's a lot of suffering that happens with depression because um, people don't want to hear it or they don't know what to do or they don't have support. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. So, so you, you talk about anxiety as your friend and now you're talking about depression as a, mm-hmm. as a friend. W- would you say that one of the goals of dynamic emotional integration work, your work, is to make all of the emotions friends, become mm-hmm. become good friends, intimate friends with all the emotions. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, that? my pals. Yeah. Yeah. And then and sometimes to call on them. Uh, 
um, this weekend, I was dealing with something where I was mostly using apathy and depression. I was just, <laughs> I was just losing my energy, and I didn't even care. And I started thinking about what do I need? What do I need? What's going to help me resolve this situation? Because it's not working for me. And um, it turned out I needed some sadness. I needed to let things go. I needed some some fear. I needed my instincts and my intuition back. Um, I needed some happiness. I needed some hope. So I went to these emotions for that. And then I started doing the practices for the emotions, and now I'm good. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm never going to... I'm not going to say I'm never going to be apathetic or depressed again because that'd be silly. I need those emotions. But just to look at emotions as they have gifts for me. So can I go sort of stand in an emotion and say, you know, um, sadness, uh, I could use your gifts right now. That's a very different way to deal with emotions than what we've been taught. Mm-hmm. And tell me what you mean by this phrase, dynamic, dynamic emotional integration? Is, is it the idea that the emotions come, give their gifts, and move on? Hi, friend. Now it's time for you to go home. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, and that emotions are consistently changing. So that it's, it's sort of like you're working with a kaleidoscopic, continually moving system that's very dynamic. Yeah. Okay. In your new book, Embracing Anxiety, you write that new students usually ask me how often they should ground themselves. And the answer (laughs) is most of the time. And uh, that got my attention because I think my experience, and I think for a lot of people right now, being really grounded is something that is requiring extra work, more work than perhaps Mm -hmm. in pre pandemic times. And I'm wondering if you could teach us, teach our listeners, what you teach your students about being grounded, how to get grounded. For me, grounding is being present in your body right now. And to the extent that you can be, being comfortable being present right now. And the way that I help people ground themselves is just have them take in a breath, hold it for a bit, a little bit, a little bit of discomfort, and then let it out with a sigh. If they're sitting, feel their bottom in the chair. Feel the back of their legs on the chair. Um, you know, feel, move back and feel the back of the chair. Feel their feet on the floor. Look around themselves. See where they are in space and time. Breathe in again and sigh. Grounding is just being here now. And the the breathing in and creating a little bit of tension is a way to sort of help the body and help the person feel that they have a choice when there's tension. Make some tension, sigh it out. That sighing is the very soft presentation of sadness, which is an emotion that helps you let go of things that aren't working anyway. And so we created a situation that doesn't work. You're holding your breath. It's not comfortable and let it go. And so grounding in this way gives people like a constant, regular capacity to be in the present moment and also a constant way to be able to create and then release discomfort. And a lot of people don't even know they have that option, that when discomfort comes, they sort of, you know, tense up, 
lift themselves up, uh, maybe distract themselves, you know, with something on the Internet uh, or something to eat or drink when they're not hungry, just anything, because they don't feel they have a choice point when there's discomfort. And so this is giving people like a constant, sort of a retraining. You have a choice. You have a choice. And feel your bottom on the chair. Feel your feet on the floor. Look around yourself. Um, and this is really important, especially at a time when there's lots of um, uh, fear of the future, and fear of uh, health problems and, and um, dealing with inequality and injustice and all of the, the difficult, difficult times that are going on, is that even in the face of everything that's terrible, you can still breathe in and out. You can still be in the present moment. You can still be grounded and listen to your emotions. And in that grounded state, if what comes up as you pointed to is potentially the awareness of this trio of fear, anxiety, and panic in some way, oh, okay, you know, I I listened to this whole recording with Carla, and I realized there's a little bit of uh, just right here in the present moment, I'm like wide awake and a little freaked out and a little panicked as well and anxious well I don't really have anything to do on my list and but I'm unsettled about what the future might bring maybe there's something I should do what does the person do then when they've got this fear anxiety panic trio in the grounded present moment when there's panic because it is an emergency level emotion I usually focus on the panic first because uh, it needs to be addressed immediately so I would taking a breath, ground myself, and look around and say, is there anything that is literally going to kill me right now? <laughs> uh, am I in physical danger of physical death? And, um, you know, I'm looking around myself in my office now. I say, so panic, thank you for your presence. I am not in danger right now. Now what? And then you just see what the emotions want to say. Um, my my anxiety shrine, Tino, was getting ready to go to the store a couple of weeks ago. This was before people were really um, really had their skills under them for how to be out in public. And as he thought about it the night before, he got more and more anxious and more and more upset. And I said, sweetie, I think, are you feeling panic about this? And he sat and he went, yeah. And I said, I don't think you should go. I don't think you feel safe. This isn't just anxiety. You know, listen to your panic, and I can go to the store. Um, you know, that sort of thing. But what what might people usually say to that? They'd be like, oh, come on, Tino, go to this. It's just the store. Why are you being so silly, right? They, We've been taught to, to shame our own emotions and to shame the emotions of others. So the important thing is to check in with panic first. And then when you have, you panic and go, okay, you know, She's paying attention. <laughs> I have a friend here. I have an ally. And then go through the rest of the emotions and see if there's anything specific you need to do. It can take a bit, right? But you know what takes longer <laughs> is living a life without emotional skills and without knowing what's happening inside yourself. What would you say for you was the hardest of all the emotions to befriend for you and your experience? Anxiety. Ah, what do they say? We teach what we need to learn, the classic yep. saying? Yeah. Uh, in the language of emotions, which I wrote in 2010, or it came out in 2010, I didn't have anxiety in there as its own emotion. 
because I'm a task-oriented person, so I never, I only, only rarely feel anxiety at a place where I could identify it. And so I thought anxiety was another person's problem, <laughs> that they didn't know how to work with their fear. I did not know what anxiety was because I didn't feel it in myself. So Dr. Lamia's work on task versus procrastination anxiety behaviors really helped me go, duh, I had you know, uh, an ignorance about anxiety because I didn't feel it in the way other people do. Um, I didn't have any patience for it. And so writing this book has been really helpful for me because uh, it's my, uh, my sincere apology to this beautiful emotion. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that person who says, you know, the hardest one for me is befriending sadness and really deep brokenheartedness. I'm just so afraid that if I really made that friendship in a deep way, I'd be overwhelmed by it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say, is that sadness? Um, Sadness comes forth when you have a choice, when you need to let go of something that isn't working anymore. That brokenheartedness feels like grief. And grief is a big emotion because sadness is lovely. It's not as intense as grief. And grief um, requires grief rituals and grief shrines, and it requires community. And um, I'm not the first person who has called uh, the United States a grief-impaired culture. I would say most of the Western European um, uh, cultures are grief-impaired. We've lost our ability to mourn. So I think that fear of going into grief, I think that's pretty intelligent because we don't know how. It would be like, okay, yeah, go into this really intense emotion with no skills and no support. (laughs) You know, see you later. Um, With grief, Mm -hmm. we really need support. Tell me what you mean by our culture being a grief-impaired culture. We don't know how to work with death. We don't know how to accept it. Um, my, uh, my husband, Tino, is a hospice nurse, and th- this is fairly well known, but in the last six months of life, and this is the last six months when people, they've been given their diagnosis, they are going to die in six months, this is where people spend the most of their health care dollars. They were going to die anyway. There is, and, and doctors look at going on hospice as a failure instead of this person is going to die. Let's give them the best possible six months that they could have. Let's have parties every day and massages, right? Hospice is like, um, it's like a party. It's beautiful. But it's looked at as a terrible failure on the part of the medical community. So our medical community has just, they're terrible with death. They're just so bad at it. And, you know, I notice in everyday speech, people would say, if I die, I want you to have this painting. I'm like, you're going to die, write it down. When you die, I <laughs> thank you for the painting, right? But we still think we have an option with death and that we can do things about death. Um, we can throw money at death um, and that death is a failure. Uh, instead of, no, death is, we we got to go there. I think our friend Michael Mead says that many people go into death uh, backward. They have a a breach death, uh, which is like a breach 
birth where a baby comes butt first, and that's not good. Um, uh, yeah, a lot of us are not aware of death. We don't have any connection to it. Um, uh, for instance, uh, in houses here in the United States but elsewhere, the parlor of a home used to be where you have a wake. When your people died, you had them in the home. The parlor was the place that you came. Every house, you know, pretty much every house had a parlor. And the parlor has now become the living room. So the death room has become the living room. People don't have their dearly departed in their homes anymore. We've actually moved them out of our homes. And um, we've, we've forgotten what the purpose of the parlor was. It's very interesting. Carla, to complete our conversation for now on befriending emotions, I would love to know what your experience is like, what people you've trained, what their experience is like being with emotions as friends. I mean, I think a lot of us know what it's like to push various emotional states away, to feel overwhelmed by our emotions, to feel confused, not know which one it is to go from, you know, everything's cool to, oh my God, I'm screaming, you know, not to catch the subtle parts of the emotion when it's rising. What's it like to befriend emotions and live with dynamic emotional integration? What's that like? Integration. Um, well, in, I have to say in some ways it's lonely and I didn't know this would happen, but what has happened is all the people who I've trained, we've become this big international family um, that loves to um, share horrible emotion memes with each other and go, can you believe someone just said this on the Internet? Like, we just look around ourselves at how badly people are trained in their emotions and how how miserable the, the messaging we get about emotions is. I've actually got a, a, a group on Facebook that people can join where we just, you know, take the mickey out of emotion memes and empathy memes. Um, but, but yeah, we found that we really, we, it's a very loving community, a hilarious, um, sarcastic community, and we come together and call ourselves out. Like someone just came and said, I just thought of depression as a negative emotion. I was hoping that my depression would go away. You all, you just need to help me here. And we realize we're surrounded at all times by just terrible, terrible training about emotions. And so we ended up becoming this, you know, merry band of misfits who love emotions in an emotion-hating world. Um, okay, but to take it further, as a merry band member, <laughs> what's it like? I mean, it's like, oh, things are fluid. Emotions come, they go. I don't hold on to them. I know how to process them smoothly. I mean, besides being in opposition to the cultural norm. Yeah, it does. It just flows. Life flows. We, it, it's, it's, it's like we're rafters and we've learned how to raft and we're not terrified of the depths and we know how everything works and sometimes we go under but we realize that was going to happen and now we have friends and colleagues that we can talk to about it and um, it's, it's beautiful. Um, I'm also noticing that people are more able to deal with emotions at many, many different levels of intensity. And um, I was undertaking, I, I, I'm writing a new book for you, and it's been a very, very difficult book to write, just painful because of the, of the 
because it's a painful situation. It's about emotions in the workplace. If you want to see people who hate emotions, you need to go to the workplace. And I just, you know, I was overwhelmed by the uh, the implications um, of of talking about this and what would happen to people and what is happening to people in the workplace. And I hit a really strong suicidal patch where I was like, I'm done. I've had it. I'm not going to do this. And you would normally think, okay, that means you need to stop writing this book, right? That's 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 the end. And going through it, I realized, no, I need to write the book in a different way. That the way that I had been thinking of it would never have worked. It was not acceptable. And then I reframed the the book. But we were talking about this in our community. I was like, how many times have you turned away from something because you felt that strongly and you had just you know, give me liberty or give me death. And then you were able to flip it. And we were all really been thinking about that since then. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to quite let you go because Carla bringing up something like feeling a quote unquote suicidal ideation in relationship Mm -hmm. to writing a book. I don't want to let that go without addressing it a little more. In your book, The Language of Emotions, you actually talk about the suicidal urge as an emotion that carries a genius of asking the question, what needs to die inside? Mm -hmm. And I found that so helpful just to uh, say and be confessional here with my insights at the edge audience. I'm not a suicidal person. And anybody who's listening to that, who just hears these words and needs support and help, please call a hotline of some kind and get it. What I'm trying to underscore is I'm not actually Uh, a suicidal person by nature, but I do have a suicidal ideation. And I always wondered about that. Like, what is that? What's going on Mm -hmm. inside me? And it wasn't, Carla, until you're writing in the language of emotions that I asked that question of myself, what needs to die right now? And I realized in asking that question, it was so helpful. It like unlocked the whole experience for me. So I just wanted to say a little bit more about that so our listeners don't get confused here. And I wonder what you might want to add on. Yeah. Well, the rule in DEI is when the suicidal urge comes up, the human being is off the table. That person's off the table. There is not going to be any self-harm. What we do is we turn this powerful, intense emotion toward the issue that brought it forward. And this is where the fundamental attribution error of emotion can be fatal, that if people think that the suicidal urge is about killing themselves, um, it's a very intense emotion. I, uh, my first suicidal urge occurred when I was 10, so I grew up with them and learned to work with them. And what I've noticed is if you ask the suicidal urge, what must end, what must die, and sometimes it's what must be killed, then it has a place to put all of its intensity and all of its kind of um, sort of, um, I, I want to say violence. It has a place to put that. And then, like, I was able to look at the book and say, no, you're dead. You're dead to me. And then go away for a day, and then the next day I had the new book in my head. Um, But I couldn't do it from where I was. It wasn't even possible. And I needed an emotion that was strong enough to come forward and help me see, no, it's not doable. It's done. Um, Needs to go. 
And that's hard to do when you're writing and you're on a deadline and, and people are waiting for you, right? How many people, how many of us have just kept going on something that we knew didn't work? Um, so this emotion, when when you can befriend it and begin to understand it and, and work with it, you know, with support, of course, it doesn't need to mean that you need to die. It mm-hmm. can just be something needs to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Carla, you offer such a unique and human upgrading, in my view. You upgrade our consciousness and understanding of emotions in a way, quite honestly, in my experience, uh, no other author has done for me in my reading. And I'm so grateful for you and your dedication to articulating and educating people on a grand unified theory of emotions and the genius that they each contain. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Carla McLaren is the author with Sounds True of the book, The Language of Emotions, also the book, The Art of Empathy, and a new book on embracing anxiety, how to access the genius inside this vital emotion. And there's also a complimentary audio teaching program called Practices for Embracing Anxiety. May our emotions help us during this time. May we listen to them. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.